0: Hello, and
1: welcome to the Injury Prevention Podcast from BMJ Journals. I'm Brian Johnston, the Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast will often focus on a paper that we've recently published in the print edition of our journal, Injury Prevention. This paper is flagged as the editor's choice for the issue, and it can be freely downloaded online. If you navigate over to injuryprevention.bmj.com, you can obtain a copy for yourself. You can also leave comments there online and link to our searchable archive and to our blog. Today, we're going to look at the paper, Preventing Deaths and Injuries from House Fires, an Outcome Evaluation of a Community-Based Smoke Alarm Installation Program. This is a paper that appears in our April 2014 issue, and to talk about it, I'm joined by two of the authors. Dr. Greg Istry is a pediatrician and epidemiologist who serves as the medical director of the Injury Prevention Center of Greater Dallas. And Mary McCoy is a data analyst at the center and, among other duties, coordinates operation installation with the Dallas Fire Department. So a warm welcome to both of you to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you, Brian. Good to be here.
1: Your paper looks at an intervention to reduce morbidity and mortality for from house fires. And maybe we can start by setting the stage. Can you describe for us how big an issue this is in the United States and perhaps globally?
2: There are about 2,600 deaths and 13,000 injuries a year from house fires in the U.S., and worldwide it's estimated that there are at least a half a million deaths, maybe up to 800,000 deaths a year. The U.S. has shown a lot of improvement in its rates over the last 30 years or so, rates 60 to 70 percent lower than they were, but, but uh, we still rank in about the middle of the developed countries in our house fire death rates. It is one of the leading causes of injury death for many age groups uh, in the U.S., especially children.
1: One of the most compelling things about this work, I think, is that we believe injury and death due to house fire is imminently preventable. Uh, What sort of interventions do we know or do we believe uh, work?
2: Yeah, we certainly know that they are preventable. they're, They're preventable through measures that might prevent the fires themselves like safe use of space heaters and cooking and avoiding smoking keeping lighters and matches away from children things like that but if there is a fire then clearly having a smoke detector to provide an early warning is an important uh, prevention uh, measure in terms of preventing deaths and injuries and having an escape plan is undoubtedly important for people to be able to get out of the burning house, and and also the fire sprinklers uh, may be the most effective prevention measure, but they're also the most expensive, and for many poor neighborhoods, they're unaffordable, unfortunately.
1: So the project uh, that you highlight in your paper was something I, I quite enjoyed reading about. It it was uh, a truly traditional public health model
2: uh,
1: of problem identification design of an intervention, and then evaluation. It was a a lengthy undertaking. Um, I think you cover almost 10 years of of your experience in your data analysis. Um, You want to give us a little background? How did this program get started?
2: This actually started almost 20 years ago, and we did take just very traditional steps that are used in public health to identify the problem. Almost 20 years ago, we began working with the local fire department here in Dallas to study the epidemiology of house fire injuries and deaths in Dallas and we're able to build a surveillance data set and link it with the house fires from the fire department data set and overlay it on census data and and we I were able to identify at least in the 1990s that there were a few main risk factors none of these were surprising but they we were able to show it with our local data and and those factors were living in the poorest census tracts number one, not having a smoke alarm, number two. There were 255 census tracts in Dallas, and only about 50 of them even had one death in the seven-year period that we studied it during the 90s, and so it made sense for us to try to focus on the census tracts that were at highest risk. We were well aware of an effective program that had been undertaken in Oklahoma in the early 90s uh, canvassing neighborhoods and giving out smoke alarms. And so we we basically with, armed with the data that we had, which was knowing that uh, fire deaths and injuries are most common in the poorest census tracts and identifying exactly which census tracts had the highest rates. And knowing that those same census tracts tended to have very low prevalence of smoke alarms, we geared this smoke alarm installation program to those high risk census tracts and we pretty much patterned it exactly after what was done in Oklahoma except that we used lithium powered smoke alarms so that the, we we're hoping that they would give us a longer uh, viability and we also installed all the smoke alarms as opposed to just giving them out so so that we knew that they were actually put up and in place
1: so this is what you call operation installation, and um, Mary, do you want to tell us any more about what this program looks like uh, in, in day-to-day operation?
0: Sure. Um, briefly, operation installation works like this. We start with four teams. Each team will have a fire engine. We use the fire engine to generate interest in the neighborhood as it moves kind of slowly down the streets. Uh, people are more likely to open their doors when they see the fire engine, and also they respond very uh, favorably to um, firefighters. There are usually four installer teams with each engine. Uh, usually each team will be made up of a fire inspector, uh, firefighters, and then one or two volunteers. Each team will basically go door to door installing free lithium power smoke alarms. Um, we also collect data using a survey form. Uh, We try to do this once a month on a Saturday between 8.30 and 12.30, so not too much time for our volunteers. Uh, And then we uh, install around basically about 300 to 400-plus smoke alarms per session, and uh, the data that we collect is entered in the computer for evaluation.
1: So your paper actually then goes on to describe a controlled comparison of intervention and non-intervention households in these identified high-risk census tracts how many homes and people were involved in your study?
2: Um yeah, we we called them program homes and non-program homes just just to uh to clarify. The program homes were the ones that we actually got into and installed at least one smoke alarm. And the non-program homes were the re- basically the rest of the houses in the same census tract. So they were on the same blocks and the same neighborhoods as it turned out, we got into about 8,000 houses. Uh, which housed about 28,000 people, and we put in 20,000 smoke alarms roughly. But we did not get into about 24,000 homes with about 79,000 people living in, those we call the non program homes.
1: And what were the outcomes then that you, you followed to assess the effectiveness of your program?
2: Well, fortunately, because we had this surveillance system that we had set up in the 1990s, we were able to look at deaths and injuries from house fires, which is the ultimate outcome that we called a case a, a death or an injury that was related to a house fire in one of those uh, 36 census tracts that we had gone into with Operation Installation. And during the time that we followed it from 2001 through 2011, we had uh, like Like I mentioned, about 28,000 people, but uh, we've, some of those tracks that we had uh, installed smoke alarms early during that time period, we had up to 10 years of follow up. But other tracks that we got to later, we had less follow up. And on average, we had about five years of follow up for the entire population there. But there were 42 cases, and 38 of them were in non program homes, and the the non program homes. And those census tracts had a rate of deaths and injuries of 9.6 per 100,000, which is about, by the way, just almost exactly what the rate had been in the 1990s when we looked at these same census tracts and identified them as the highest risk. That's compared to the rest of Dallas, which has a rate of about 2 per 100,000. But in the program homes, there were only four cases, and that translated to a rate of about 3.1 per 100,000. So it's about 68% lower rate of deaths and injuries in the program homes that we had put a smoke alarm in. So we we felt like that was a pretty good sign of of success. It was, of course, statistically significant. We did multivariate analysis comparing the uh, various factors among the census tracts, and we found a... Uh, efficacy of around 65% or so from that analysis as well.
1: One of the uh, one of the interesting things to me that you did uh, was to unpack the intervention a little bit. You uh, went back into a sample of, of your program homes to monitor the functionality of their smoke alarms over time, and the results of that investigation are reported in a companion paper, which is also in this month's issue of the journal. Mary, uh, can you tell us what you found when, when you went back and looked at those alarms?
0: What we did is we conducted a random sample survey of houses uh, that have smoke alarms installed through operation installation uh, 2, 4, six, eight, and 10 years ago. Um, what we found is, as you might expect, uh, we found that the percentage of currently installed smoke alarms really declined over time, and by year 10, only 55% of the smoke alarms were still present. So that means that 45% of the smoke alarms were removed, and I think we were really surprised that such a large number were missing. Also what we found were those that were originally installed that were still working were substantially lower in years six through 10 compared to years two to four. And again by, 10, uh, by year 10 around 20% of the smoke alarms were uh, still working. The other remaining that were about the 35% that were still remaining were not working basically due to battery issues or the smoke alarm had failed. Uh, Another thing that we found was that the the median time that the home had at least one working smoke alarm appeared to be five years, which corresponded with the outcome evaluation of operation installation, which found that the program, uh, again, was most effective in the first five years um, after the smoke alarm was installed.
1: So the the proportion of functioning smoke alarms clearly declined over time. Were there any other predictors besides Time elapsed of having a non-functioning alarm.
0: We did conduct uh, multivariate logistic regression, and we uh, found four factors that were associated with um, having at least one functioning operation installation smoke alarm in the home. Uh, we found that homes that had the original resident and follow up follow up and um, homes that uh, originally had more than one uh, smoke alarm install were more likely to have a working smoke alarm. Uh, we found that homes that had smokers, and the number of years, again, since the smoke alarms were originally installed, again, were less likely to have a working smoke alarm present.
1: So as you point out, these uh, these results in terms of the proportion of remaining functional alarms uh, clearly align nicely with the outcomes reported in the primary paper. Were there other takeaway lessons uh, from the for the prevention community? Have you changed your intervention in any way in light of these findings?
2: Well, the main one, actually, is that this population apparently didn't maintain their smoke alarms. And the 45% of alarms that had been removed was was a surprise to us. And that was associated with having a different resident in the house when we did the follow-up is an implication that the residents may have been taking down the smoke alarms when they left. But clearly maintaining the smoke alarms is a key factor here and if if they're not maintained or if they're removed obviously a program like this is not going to be effective the other thing that we that became apparent fairly well into this is that we were not reaching a majority of the high risk population on average we were only able to get into about 25 of these of these houses and And we are working on ways now to try to increase our reach.
1: Well, congratulations, both of you, on an important study. I really enjoyed reading about it, and I think our our readers will as well. Do you want to tell us what else is going on in, in Dallas? What other issues have been keeping you busy, Greg?
2: One of the things that we're excited about this year is that we're going to be celebrating our 20th anniversary. We continue to be indebted to Doctor Ron Anderson and Dr. Paul Bomboulian, who are both retired now but who who had the idea of forming this center. We do all all of our work out in the community and we we've collaborated with more than a hundred different agencies and organizations in our area. We've been working on a variety of injury topics, including motor vehicle, pedestrian, uh, house fires, falls, child abuse prevention and But we've evolved over the years to try to leverage our capacity by working with other groups to try to get them to incorporate evidence-based, proven effective strategies into into their agencies and organizations. We feel that's probably the most effective way, ultimately, to work. For example, fire departments incorporated operation installation into their routine. They do most of this. Mary coordinates it, but uh, the fire department sends a lot of their staff um, out to do these uh, sessions and we've been working with schools and daycares to incorporate child passenger safety into their routine and we're working with home visitor programs to incorporate injury prevention into their activities and been pilot projects with churches to implement elderly fall prevention programs and local clinics to expand injury prevention counseling work so we're, we're really trying to leverage our Ability to do injury prevention through other agencies like that.
1: Well, congratulations to you, to your center, and to your community partners. This is, I think, the second paper that we, from uh, your center we featured in our podcast, which is a sign that you're doing work that, that we acknowledge is important and innovative and worthy of of study and replication. So, that was uh, Dr. Greg Istree and Mary McCoy discussing their paper in the April. 2014 issue of Injury Prevention. It's called Preventing Deaths and Injuries from House Fires, an Outcome Evaluation of a Community-Based Smoke Alarm Installation Program. The paper is this month's Editor's Choice, and as always, it's available without access restriction at the journal's website. That concludes this edition of our podcast. You can join us in June for highlights of the next issue. In the meantime, have a look at our blog for news, opinion, comment, and discussion.